Good friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm not sure we're using the right microphone. Well, it's the Yeti. We've always used, well, not always used no, the Yeti. No, something's wrong here. Well, what do you suggest? I suggest we use the right microphone. Hello, and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Orwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this is very exciting, isn't it? You're a lot further away. <laughs> we're not all clustered around a single microphone anymore. We each have individual microphones. We're standing in separate corners of the room, looking at each other suspiciously. I'm lamenting the poor Yeti that's in a box somewhere and our mould-encrusted stool has been put in a corner. <laughs> but yes, this is all a way of saying that we are finally rec- recording with our brand shiny new microphones. We're obviously still learning a little bit about the technology, so we may have to play around with things like pop filters and so on later on, but I, I think on the whole, from our test recordings, this is going to sound better. So if you've noticed a difference, if you like the difference, please let us know. If you don't like the difference, you can also let us know, but it will hurt our feelings. So what have we been up to over the last week or so since we last recorded? Both Matt and I have been running games at Milton Keynes RPG. You've been running Heaven yeah. and Earth, haven't you? Yes, we're on week five of an eight-week campaign. Uh, we had a few weeks of scene setting, and then when everyone had finally got used to the weirdness of Potter's Lake, I took the gloves off and slapped them around a lot. As um, one of the players put out on the um, local list, uh, Martin, said that it felt like being hit by a baseball bat repeatedly in the back of the head again and again and again and again. <laughs> <laughs> well, who wouldn't but, want to play that? But in a good way, right? Yeah. No, that, that was, you weren't actually standing behind him hitting him in the head with a baseball bat. I, I, that would be incriminating if I was to say <laughs> anything on, on I, that. I'm not thinking of that scene from The Untouchables. <laughs> Touchable. <laughs> <laughs> so what is Heaven and Earth, Matt? Do you want to say a bit about that? Because it's a bit more of an obscure game, I think. Oh, I, the only time I've encountered it is when I sat in on one of your games of, of it. So ah, It's one of my favourite games. Honestly, it's an amazing, amazing game. It's The best way to describe it is Twin Peaks the RPG. Um, it's evidently a game that's taken a lot of inspiration from the show. Its default setting is small town America, this lovely little town called Potter's Lake in Kansas. Um, usually around the kind of the millennial era, and it's it's pretty much got every horror trope in there. You've got ghosts, you've got angels, demons, warlocks, witches, cults, government conspiracies, psychics, the the works. There's so it's a wide and varied canvas that you can draw from, and just so much weirdness that you can throw at the players and make them go, "What the hell?" Dancing dwarves and red curtains. No, I, but I did have a dancing clown. Uh, a clown on a unicycle perform, uh, performing to uh, Bodies in a Morgue. Of course you did. Okay, yeah. well, close enough. Yeah. <laughs> what about you, Scott? Uh, yeah, I've been running Monster Hearts at the club, and it's been going very, very well. Uh, the, it's It's been a great group of players, and they've been keeping me on my toes and just throwing all sorts of weird shit out there. And I've been trying to hold on as best I can. I, I think... Yeah, with this now being five weeks in, we're already facing at least two potential apocalypses. Plus, of course, the Halloween dance. So I'm I'm not sure which one's going to prove to be more deadly. I'm sorry to be missing it. Sounds good. (laughs) It is. (laughs) There was a a good bit on a different uh, topic. Good bit of news that came out of Kickstarter this week. Yes, you were telling me about this on the car on the way over. Oh, which two two bits of good news then. Oh, okay. Um, The first one, which admittedly is not confirmed fully as yet, because it was only a teaser that was put up on their site. The Kickstarter for Cult 4th Edition hopefully goes live tomorrow, so that will be the 15th of January, as of the time of recording. So, yeah, I imagine my bank account is going to be screaming out in lots of pain when uh, when that <laughs> finally comes along. Um, the other bit of good news, though, um, after having been caught by x-ray screening at the New York docks and then having to um, then have to go to distribution centres, the C is for Cthulhu Plush is finally shipping! <laughs> We need a camera to pick up, pick up Scott's face. Scott's so pleased <laughs> yeah. about this. 
Yeah, as I've said before, C is not for Cthulhu. <laughs> what are you getting on that, Matt? Plushes and books and... Well, this, this was another example of me winning a, um, another contest recently. Oh, my God. Um, where they had a caption contest of the plush in a situation. It was uh, trying to look over the wheel of a car. So I put, oh, so this is the time even a great old one realises they need a booster seat. Uh, of course, I won it, and they um, <laughs> they promptly doubled my pledge level. So instead of having the two plushies come through, I have four plushies coming through. Oh, for fuck's sake. You can't have too many of them. Especially when they're three colours. So I've got two green, a red, and a purple. Hmm? Again, Scott's it's, face is priceless. It's an entire <laughs> rainbow of shit. <laughs> <laughs> I think the little guy looks cute. But before we get into the... The word of the, 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 the what's it. Uh, let's just say that it's very, very appropriate that we've got our new microphones this week because our topic this week is sort of the shock of the new. Uh, it's all about the particularly... Partic- what's it about, Scott? It's all about the particular difficulties or perhaps advantages of running horror games in the modern day. But before that... Yes. And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. And this week's Lovecraftian word of the week, degenerate, an adjective, having declined, as in function or nature, from a former or original state. Two, morally corrupt or given to vice. Mm. Why are you nodding with that (laughs) grin, Lord? Why? Or a depraved or corrupt person. I almost chose newfangled as the word of the week for this episode because Lovecraft did use it three times in his writings, but the actual examples I could have chosen wouldn't have been that interesting. Newfangled is such a great phrase, though. It is, isn't it? You can't really say it without shaking your fist. (laughs) (laughs) To to be fair, I don't think you can say most things without shaking your fist. Especially science! That's the... Degenerate seems to be, I think, a very Lovecraftian word again. Again, partially because it it captures that sense of disgust that you know, permeates his work, but I think also because a lot of his worldview and certainly a lot of the stuff that comes through in the stories is the fact that we live in something of a fallen age. That you know, all mankind's great glories were in the past, and this is. Or, you know, the 1920s or the 30s even were a degenerate age. And God only knows what Lovecraft would think of the modern day. God knows, yeah. I mean, it, we see it in his stories as well, in, in Beyond the Mountains of Madness. He's constantly talking about the, the old ones. They've kind of become degenerate. They've become decadent. And he is, this, this is kind of associated with degeneracy. It was interesting trying to find examples from his, his work to use, though. He used it some 15 times throughout his stories. And... It's one of these ones where it was a bit of a minefield because oh it turns up in some of his stories in, shall we say, a less than pleasing way. It turns up in, I can't remember, it was either The Street or He, in one of his more luridly racist passages. It's not applied to good upstanding white folk, though, is it? No. No. Oh, dear. <laughs> Let's take a look at how Lovecraft used the word degenerate in his writing. From Beyond the Wall of Sleep, that there he was no peasant or degenerate, but a creature of importance and vivid life, moving proudly and dominantly, and checked only by a certain deadly enemy who seemed to be a being of visible yet ethereal structure, and who did not appear to be of human shape, since Slater never referred to it as a man, or aught save a thing." And from the lurking fear, the place is a remote, lonely elevation in that part of the Catskills where Dutch civilization once feebly and transiently penetrated, leaving behind as it receded only a few ruined mansions and a degenerate squatter population inhabiting pitiful hamlets on isolated slopes. And from At the Mountains of Madness. Would to heaven we had never approached them at all, but had run back at top speed out of that blasphemous tunnel with the greasily smooth floors and the degenerate murals aping and mocking the things they had superseded. Run back before we had seen what we did see 
and before our minds were burned with something which will never let us breathe easily again. And our topic for this discussion is the trouble with today. Let's have a look at the peculiar problems with trying to run horror games in the modern day. Well, there's a bunch of issues that crop up when you try and run a game in the modern day. Probably the first one is everybody's on their mobile phones, and I don't mean the people at the table. Though that is a particular bugbear of the modern day. Uh, I, thought, yeah. I thought you were just going to say you, that it was kind of jumping across the table and say, put your fucking phone away! <laughs> Actually, I've, I've noticed recently that people are doing a lot, lot less. But you know, a couple of years ago at conventions, people would not put their tablets and phones away. Uh, maybe the novelty is wearing off, or maybe people are just learning good manners. If you're out there and you're listening to this and, and you're playing in a convention game, please put your phone away, please, please, please. So why does having mobile phones screw up the scenario? And why are we so determined that there's going to be no signal wherever they are? <laughs> I remember um, it was actually Matt Nixon running an um, impromptu Dead of Night scenario a few years back at, I think it was Conception. Um, where I think I used every one of my survival points by saying, there's an app for that, <laughs> uh, by, t- by turning my phone into, oh, yeah, by the way, I just so happened to get the information on this. Oh, yeah, it turns into a torch, so that dark room that we're going into, I can see everything in. And it was, oh, for God's sake, you're not having another fucking app on that phone. <laughs> yeah, they have turned into the Swiss army knife of the modern, uh, the modern RPG. Far too useful. But it all boils down to that idea that the cornerstone of atmospheric horror is isolation. That, well, it's more than that, that it's that sense of helplessness. And with a mobile phone, you may not be physically in contact with other people, but you're never necessarily out of contact as long as you've got signal and, and battery life. You have to, I think, as a GM or a keeper, sort of play around a little bit with a lot of the tropes and tools that you would normally use in a horror game. You, you can't rely on the fact that you know, people are going to be completely out of contact. That isn't necessarily a bad thing. It just requires a bit of creativity. I guess what I'd like to ask is, what, what are we afraid of by letting them have their mobile phones? That's a very good point. And it was something that came home to me recently, uh, well, a couple of years ago. I was developing a scenario called The Space Between, which is set in modern-day Los Angeles. Mobile phones were always going to be a big part of that. And one thing that really came home to me when I was running that was the fact that in a modern-day game, you no longer have to necessarily worry about the consequence of splitting the party because we had people going in two or three different directions. The group split almost immediately. At the same time, any time they needed to share information or get in contact with each other or work out where each other were or whatever, they just pull out the phone, have a quick conversation. And so it meant that characters who weren't physically located in a particular scene could still be involved. And it, that was a, a real boon. And it kind of rationalises that what we might call metagaming of players talking to each other at the table when mm. actually their characters are in different locations, if indeed you feel the need for an explanation for that. I think... For me, it's the phone represents a, a lifeline. It represents a, almost like a safety net or comfort blanket for them to say, oh, we've, we've still got that connection to the outside world. Sure, it definitely, I can't disagree at all with the comment that, yeah, it's good that you can bring other players into a scene if they're in another location. Can't, yeah, hands down, no issues with that. But there is the, the time when it's, oh, well, we need to bring in help from the outside world. Let's either, Scott's favourite line of call the police, or they want to get some other authority, like we call the fire brigade, we call the army, we call a mother, whatever, that it's a way for them to bring in the outside world to help them rather than them being the sole focus of what's going on. Well, let, let's just keep the emergency services to one side for the moment. Who else are you, who are you going to call? Are you going <laughs> to call your friends? Yes, you can call them in. That doesn't really wreck a scenario. So a few of the player characters, hapless buddies turn up you know, that's going to be brutally murdered or something, aren't they? I mean, and, and also, unless they're right on the doorstep, if it's an urgent situation anyway, if you know, it takes them even 10 minutes to turn up, a lot can happen in 10 minutes. Yeah, so let's say I am away in the Scottish Highlands and the keeper allows me to have my phone signal. Then I phone you up, Matt, and say, oh, I'm in this house and I'm, I'm hearing weird things. I think there's, you know, I think there's monsters. Can you come and help? 
that's great. I'm in Buckingham. That's going to take me forever to drive up there. <laughs> and you got work tomorrow. Yeah, screw that. No. <laughs> <laughs> Who are you going to call on that's going to come rushing to, to your aid? And how much help are they going to be? Again, that goes back to the idea then of the emergency services. And when we were discussing this earlier, you brought up a very good point, which is, you know, in most horror games or most horror situations, if you would phone up the police and say, we're in the house and, you know, say all the furniture's flying around and there's blood dripping down the walls. Yes, sir. Yeah. <laughs> we'll be there shortly. Yeah. And there are all sorts of ways the, the authorities can be compromised. Depending on the, the scope of the scenario that you're doing. I mean, if it's something like an alien invasion, perhaps, you know, the aliens got to the police first. They replace them with pod people. Alternatively, you know, just because you're getting a connection over the telephone to someone who says they're the police, are they actually the police? And also, if there is something a bit more, well, not necessarily global going on, but if it's not just in your locality, when you phone up the police, if the same thing is happening elsewhere, then you might just be number 57 in the queue. Um, and, and, you know, their forces are deployed elsewhere already. Your call is important to us. Please hold the line. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, of course, another way around it, perhaps an even more obvious way, is, you know, what if the investigators or the player characters are the police? They're the ones who are supposed to sort this out. Yes, all right, they can call for backup, and that could justify bringing additional player characters in. But it's not going to magically make all their problems go away. And time is another issue. In most instances, unless you know, you've reported armed people attacking a building you're in, or you know, you've seen gun crime or something like that, then I think often the police aren't that quick to respond. Mm. Um, and if, you, if I phoned up now and reported a break-in next door... I wouldn't expect the police to be round, well, I don't know, how quick? Well, I mean, it depends entirely on the type of crime. I, I remember years ago when I was living down in London, I had some you know, drunken lout outside my house who had started throwing snowballs around and they basically started uh, put stones inside snowballs and started smashing the windows in the house in which I was living. And so I phoned up the police and just sort of said, look, you know, there's, there's someone who's really messing around outside there smashing in my windows. Can you do something about it? And they said, uh, oh, here's a crime number. You know, call your insurance company. Bye. Really? Yeah. Protect and serve. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think rational explanations of what one might expect from the emergency services is perhaps a topic for another show. But I, if you are determined to sort of cut this off uh, as an avenue for the, the investigators, there are a few fairly obvious ways you could do it. One is the classic, you know, as we mentioned it, or oh, you don't get signal. In some places, that's going to beg a belief more than others. Admittedly, if you're on three mobile like I am, it could be absolutely fucking anywhere. But you could have them out in the wilderness somewhere. I mean, you gave the example of you know a remote Scottish island or something like that. I mean, the, the, the mobile services across rural Scotland are pretty terrible. Hey, in rural Buckinghamshire, they're pretty shit as well. Um, <laughs> go out to Stoke Goldington, which is a five-minute drive for five, ten minutes outside of Milton Keynes. It's like Ravenloft. The fog descends and there's no signal at all. Obviously, if people are going to really remote locations, they might pack things like satellite phones. Obviously, there's still all sorts of things about, you know, have they been tampered with? Has someone got to them and stolen them? Are the batteries running out? I mean, if you're playing a game like Dead of Night, where you're perhaps rewarding the players mechanically for screwing them over, it could sort of be, you know, here's a survival point, the battery's gone dead on your satellite phone. Yeah, okay. One of the more creative solutions I saw along those lines was a film I was watching the other day, a sort of zombie comedy film called Cooties, with uh, an outbreak of a sort of zombie virus in a school in the United States. They did this thing to begin with where, uh, because of school policy, they'd confiscated the phones off all the, the pupils and the teachers, and you know, it, it was a mobile-free, uh, mobile phone-free area. And so it became a plot point that there was this box of mobile phones in the principal's office and they were trying to get to it at some stage, but no one had them. Of course, by the time they got to them, there was a larger scale outbreak and there wasn't anyone they could call anyway. But One plus side of them, perhaps, is uh, in Call of Cthulhu, where typically investigators get killed off and we want to bring another one in. Well, if you were phoning up your buddy and they were heading out there, you know, and then when they get there, everybody's dead, <laughs> at least you've got a new investigator. Yeah, they can yeah. spend half an hour rolling up a character and die on the first roll. <laughs> <laughs> we need a random red shirt. I mean, new player. Quick, go for it. And of course, the other thing you can do is what a number of Japanese and Korean horror films seem to do, certainly last decade. There seemed to be any number that involved uh, supernatural manifestations through technology in different ways. 
you know, I remember things like, you know, Ringu uh, and... Was it One Last Call? You know, one, missed, one Missed Call. Missed Call, yeah. yes, that's it. White Noise. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there, there's certainly all sorts of ways you can have the supernatural manifest uh, through through communications technology. And the, the, the image I keep coming back to is actually a much older one, you know, pre-mobile. That wonderful scene in the original Nightmare on Elm Street, where the female lead is, uh, is on the telephone at some stage and Freddy is manifesting through it. And she's just talking and his mouth and tongue appear in the mouthpiece and the oh, tongue just yeah. comes out and starts licking her. Yeah, I've forgotten that bit. Oh, yeah. I just remember the bed-eating Johnny Depp. Yes. Mm-hmm. The trouble with transport. Well, it's not unique to the modern day, but it's certainly more available, and that's transport. You certainly have cars and you know, other motorised vehicles in the 1920s, but they're much more common in the modern day. Also, I was going to say, the road network's a hell of a lot better as well. No uh, chugging along dirt tracks like you'd have in Whispering Darkness that you've got, say, roads, autobahns, even back in the 30s. That So you've got Lovecraft's writing on the cusp of when the network's really starting to build up. Yeah. So I guess it makes it less isolated, less remote. Most places are more quickly accessible. Thanks to air travel, there's probably very few major cities in the world, or even large towns, that you know, we couldn't get to in, within 24 hours from here. Now there's another immediate problem right there. How are we going to go uh, easily justify going on a long sea voyage to get more sand back between larger chapters if we just help hop on a bloody plane? <laughs> because you're on a saga cruise for sanity. Yeah, that would be great, but you don't get that flying above from British Airways. I think you'd lose sand for the, for the experiences I've had on that bloody airline. <laughs> yeah, 1D6 sand loss for losing your luggage. Yeah, that's all they've done. Seriously, every time I've gone with BA, they've lost my fag. Perhaps that loses some of the potential romance of globetrotting adventures. You know, Masks of Nialathotep, for example, probably wouldn't feel quite the same if you were just you know, taking an easy jet flight from, from location to location. It certainly changes the feel, but then the modern day doesn't really have that romantic period feel, really. So I yeah. guess it all goes hand in hand with that. Everything is much quicker, communication's quicker, transport's quicker. If you are out somewhere and you do, as we talked about with mobile phones, you do call someone, then it is feasible that people can reach you unless, you know, you're, you're being cut off by weather or, or, you know, something such as that. And, of course, one solution to this, if this is, you know, something you see as a problem that you want to solve, would be setting scenarios in genuinely isolated places. And there still are some. For example, if you, you, know, if you set your scenario in Greenland or you know, in the, you know, the, the, the far frozen north of uh, somewhere like Finland, it's got to be a very different experience than, you know, how, say, you know, e- even just about anywhere in the UK, where you're, you're probably never more than half an hour's drive from somewhere. And something that's not just relevant to transport, but all of today's technology, is that in the 20s, when things went wrong, most people could probably have a go at fixing them. Mm. Nowadays, if something goes wrong, I mean, if you are mechanically minded, you can maybe do some work on your car. I wouldn't have a clue. Uh, But if your phone or any electronic devices go wrong, they're broken there it's just like throw them away get a new one and they can really be quite fragile all you really have to do is is get the the player characters soaked to stop their their electronics working and of course equally it's not easy to mend them but it is very easy to break them so oh, yeah. you know you just pull a bit out of the engine and and it's screwed obviously the big thing that particularly personal transportation changes in any horror scenario is that it makes it easy or easier for the player characters to run away we talked about them sabotaging the cars or basically stopping them moving. Or certainly you can stop those working or deprive the, the player characters of access to them. But I mean, there, there are other solutions as well. One is very much the idea of something you can't run away from. Something that is either going to follow you wherever you go. Thinking about It Follows, for example. Great film from last year. Once you're tagged by this thing, it will just follow you anywhere you go. It doesn't matter. Or worse than that, you know, some kind of infection or something that gets inside you, something a bit more insidious like that. In which case, yeah, you you can run as much as you want, but you can't run away from yourself. There was one example along those lines which I think was one of the best uses in a horror film I've seen, which was uh, The Ruins. I mean, it's a few years since I've seen this, so my, my memory may be a bit vague, so apologies if I get subtle details wrong. 
But it's a group of tourists, uh, young tourists, who basically go into this ruined temple that, you know, they discover after the event or a bit too late that people are not supposed to go to. And the people in the area, the, 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 the locals, basically stop them from leaving the place because as soon as they're in there, they realise they're infected with something nasty. And so, you know, they, they're basically from that point onwards just trapped in there and left in there for the horror to take its course. Mm. And that that was a particularly nasty and grim film just for that. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, the, I, I loved it. The, the, the bit that really made, uh, made me take note was when the, there's a scene in there where they, they think they hear the phone. Uh, oh, they love going back to phones. It's a step pyramid, so they've, there's yeah. this hole on the top mm. where it's not so much they've gone in the temple, they've gone on the temple and that's bad enough. But they one of them's dropped a phone down this down this big hole, and they can hear it ringing. So they decide to abseil down and go looking for the phone. And of course, hang on a minute, it's, it's over there. No, it's, it's hang on, it's over there. And then when they finally get the light on this thing, they it's actually the plant inside making this noise from all over the place. And then said plant goes in for the kill. Yeah. <laughs> what about driverless cars? Talking of transport. Yeah, I mean, there's potentially a scenario there with. Um... <laughs> cultists or Migo or, or someone you know, hijacking driverless cars. I mean, let's say you know, it's a few years in the future where I, I know a number of companies are now looking at networks of driverless cars to replace taxis and other public transport situations. How about if the Migo or someone get into that and start just using it as a way of kidnapping new people for their brain cylinders? Your car just takes a funny turn into a different part of town and drives into an abandoned garage and suddenly there's this buzzing noise from all around you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> This ain't no car wash. (laughs) The trouble with weaponry. And yet again, not unique to the modern day, but we have weaponry. Uh, More available, more effective than it was years ago. Well, more effective, certainly. I mean, more available. I mean, it depends where you are. Depends where you are, yeah. Because, yeah. you know, for example, in the UK, handguns in particular, but guns in general, are actually much harder to get hold of than they Definitely. were in the 1920s. Yeah. But in the US, you know, it's a whole different story. And there's been all sorts of stuff recently with people creating computerized automatic aiming systems and, you know, even ones that will allow you now to, you know, identify targets around corners and shoot them and so on. I want to take on the end of the campaign using drones. Yeah. (laughs) How about that? Sit back from the comfort of your armchair while (laughs) you bomb the cultists. (laughs) Admittedly, your chances of being able to, as a civilian, get hold of a predator drone and hellfire missiles probably fairly remote. But that doesn't mean that you couldn't, you know, make a, a Stop fertilizer. Stop spoiling my fun. Well, I'm thinking you could, that doesn't mean you couldn't make a, you know, fertilizer uh, nail bomb. And yeah, because I'm going to look up how to do that on the internet, Scott, <laughs> so I that thought, I can make my scenario more realistic. Yeah, there you go. Put it on a quadcopter and just fly it at the cultists. Yeah, what wasn't there a kid? This, this, I'm sure, was in the news a few months ago that did turn a drone into being able to fire a handgun. Yeah. Yes, yeah, really? that's on YouTube yeah. at the moment. Yeah, uh, I don't so think it was go. very accurate. Your dream is not ruined yet, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> so not really drive-by shootings, more fly-by. Fly-by. Yeah. Yes. Okay. This is the twenty-first century. We don't drive anymore. <laughs> One thing you did mention, Paul, was the idea of looking up how to make bombs on the internet. I mean, yeah, yes, we're not advocating that anyone do this, so yeah, unless you're, you're sure you're already on a watch list. But you can certainly not just look up how to make bombs, but make poisons, incendiary devices, timers and stuff like that. All the stuff that would require incredibly specialist skills and training, even in a scenario all the way up to the 1970s, maybe 80s. Suddenly, any one can potentially do that i imagine yeah. doing that kind of stuff has its own dangers though oh yeah you don't want to roll a double zero while doing that no <laughs> and or, for or, god's sake don't push the roll or even go on google and use the anarchist cookbook never 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 use the anarchist cookbook it's probably a bit out of date now isn't it well it, it's not just that but it's the fact that all the information in the anarchist cookbook is actually really dangerously misleading if you follow any of the bomb recipes in there you will die if you follow any of the recipes for making certain drugs in there you'll die there's a certain theme to this. It's kind of like Darwinian selection in a way. The trouble with the internet. Well, that takes us on to our next topic, the dreaded internet. Being dreaded, I live on the thing all the time. Don't we all? One thing the internet certainly does is it eliminates the requirement for about 90% of the library use rules that you'll make in a scenario. 
And you know everything on there is going to be right as well. It's going to be true. Well, that's, yeah, that, that's actually a that's very interesting thing. point. Yeah. Because, I mean, that's certainly the counter to that. Even if you're looking at mundane stuff on the internet, for, for every expert, there is an equal and opposite expert. Yeah, I, I saw there was, a, there was a good line on there from Abraham Lincoln that says, you can always trust everything you read on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> we know it's the cult of Sathogwa that are doing it. Let's just Google them. Yeah, yeah. But then, all right, spell Sathogwa. Go on. <laughs> that gets me thinking. You already get these flame wars between different political groups on the internet. The bits of the internet that aren't used for porn are used for arguing about politics. Considering the, the rival factions in different cults in Call of Cthulhu, it strikes me that if there are cultists on the internet, they must spend half their time in flame wars. You've got all these serpent people on there. You know, it's Yegit Sathogwa. No, it's Yegit Sathogwa. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine that we're living in a world with deep ones. You mean we're not? Well, we might be. Who knows? <laughs> I think it's uh, Norfolk. But presumably, you know, they're, they're spread out disparate communities around the world. What are the, you know, all these spread out disparate communities like role players? We get together through the internet. Role players, furries, all these well, yeah, communities. The, the deep ones all connect to each other through LinkedIn Smith. Oh. <laughs> So, yeah, they're going to be on there, aren't they? They're going to be on there talking to each other. And people are going to be like, oh, these guys are just nuts, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> in those forums with those guys that think they're fishmen, there would be information overload, as there is. If you go looking for any occult materials, as any Call of Cthulhu keeper has probably done, then there, there's tons of it. Yeah, the signal-to-nose ratio just makes it impossible to find you know, useful stuff, I would have thought. It's going to be even weirder, I would have thought, with um, a lot of Mythos stuff, because you know, at some stage, how are you going to tell whether someone is writing something that they believe or whether it's fanfic or part of some online game? If you were, say, an investigator going on looking for proof of some, uh, some cult activity, if you came across someone's online game of something like De Profundis, how would you tell the difference between that and what you were actually looking for? Turn that on its head. Um, one of the gaming societies I'm uh, tangentially part of these days always uh, encourages you to put a note on the bottom of your emails that said, this relates to a role-playing game. This is a work of fiction. Yeah, well, I mean, I've been yeah. sat in restaurants with people talking loudly about murders and things like that. And Dismembering you're like, bodies. Can you keep yeah. your voices down a bit? Because there are <laughs> people who aren't role-players in here. They might get the wrong idea. Well, it's, yeah, I mean, it's the same way as I think most LARPers have got some horror story or another yeah. of being stopped by the police at some stage and having mm -hmm. to explain all the mock weaponry they're carrying. And this is how the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society came to be. But that's another story. <laughs> yeah. But I, I was thinking, what happens if you have a cult that uses that kind of motif and tries to wrap it up as a game to throw, uh, to throw people well, off? Well, that'd be really mm. good, actually, yeah. But it also makes me think what you're saying about the amount of false material that there would be on the internet that purports to be real occult material. We might be missing a trick here in regular Call of Cthulhu, even back in the 20s, that there would be tons of false tomes mm. out there. When the players pick up a tome, it's very, very rarely, in my experience, is actually false. It's either, oh, this is some occult stuff, just real world in inverted commas occult, or it's a mythos tome. Not very often just a fake. Going back to the anarchist cookbook, there was a rumour going around that it was actually put together by the CIA as a way of basically nobbling radicals. So that, you know, the fact that anyone following the bomb recipes in there would blow themselves up was actually deliberate for exactly that reason. What if you had cultists out there who basically didn't like the competition, wanted to stop all the dilettantes mm. and wannabes, and basically put out trapped versions of mythos texts that had just enough uh, material in it that was feasible and believable, but then you, know, you get around to actually trying any of it and you, know, you get eaten by something from beyond. Want to summon ghouls? Just cast this spell. Don't forget the binding spell that's included below. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It makes me wonder how you would differentiate between the genuine and the false. With the tomes in Call of Cthulhu, we have reading times of at least several days, usually several weeks. How long do you spend reading an article on the internet? Take a few it. minutes, you kind of scan down through it, you flick through it, you read a few passages. Oh yeah, I've looked at the cult de Gaulle. <laughs> <laughs> but it takes Matt that long to read a short story. <laughs> roll against sleep I resemble that remark <laughs> but I mean imagine finding something on the internet and then mm. spending several weeks reading it and 
you know, making notes and trying to correlate it together in your own head. Because I, I picture kind of reading a tome as a, an academic exercise, as you would with a, you know, if you were studying a Shakespeare play or something for oh, a for an A level or degree. You're, you're going through it and you're making notes and you're comparing it with other texts, and 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 that's why it takes so long. But I mean, imagine that, you know, you're getting these things on web pages and you don't know if they're genuine or not. How much time are you going to invest in reading those? But also, I mean, sort of the counterpoint to that is that, obviously, in the case of Mythos Tome, a lot of that is because it's been written by someone who is perhaps uh, damaged by the things that they've done and read themselves. It's done as a deliberate exercise and obfuscation to try to make it difficult for people to pick up this information. In this day of short attention spans and instant access to information, what happens when cultists do all that work for you and put a plain text version of the Necronomicon on there? Or do instruction videos on YouTube. (laughs) (laughs) Today we're going to look at how to summon a ghoul. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, what kind of monster would do that, Paul? (laughs) It also occurs to me, the other thing that the internet is used for an awful lot is trying to track people down and get information doxing people and so on. If you do have cultists uh, or other ne'er-do-wells online, then that could actually be an avenue of exploration, trying to find the true identities of some of the people behind this. And that's, that's sort of a scenario in itself. There's plenty of real-world examples of people who put objectionable information on the internet and then try to hide their real identities. So there's plenty of real material you can draw on there uh, for inspiration for how to do that. Just looking at the ways that, you know, terrorists or paedophiles or you know, any other criminals, you know, spammers even. Or trolls on forums. Yeah. Yeah, and how some people try to turn tables on the, the spammers. Yeah. You know, because they, you know, it's like, yeah, we'll meet here and, you know, you give me a, a thousand pounds and... There was a fantastic website that used to put long documents together of the correspondence that that different people had with different, particularly Nigerian 419 spammers. There was this, this one who did this wonderfully Lovecraftian version of it. He basically, at some stage, managed to, through a slow series of revelations, managed to convince the spammer that he was, in fact, a head in a jar. (laughs) it was beautiful and that he was trying to raise money to grow himself a new body fantastic (laughs) we're just thinking about the effect that human agents would have within the internet what about mythos entities like Migo and so on Mm. would they try and link in some way into the internet there's scope for scenarios there Mm. surely with their command of technology and so on uh, there certainly is, although that's uh, you suddenly got me, uh, like Bob, go on there. There is a spell in Call of Cthulhu about the internet. Is there? Netwraith. You can project your consciousness into a computer system and therefore extrapolate that onto the net. So you can run around and use, I think it even says you can use, for instance, your library use skill to find information and so on. But you do risk the, uh, the problem that the longer you're away from your body, the more likely you're going to die. You probably have to enter through a 14.4 modem, though, don't you? <laughs> I don't know. Is it know. dial-up only? <laughs> it's probably written in the early 90s. I think it was, yeah. <laughs> but it occurs to me as well that it could, again, turn that round slightly and have you know, a, a cultist or, or some kind of enemy use that as a way of just screwing with people. There was a horror film that came out last year called Unfriended. Which, I want to see this. Yeah, yeah. which oh, is... Yeah. I, it should have been a terrible film, but I enjoyed the hell out of it. Mm. I, it's it's basically sort of a slasher film or no ghost spoilers, story Scott. that uh, takes place over the internet, and it, the whole thing takes place over chat windows. I mean, mm. you're just basically seeing it from someone's desktop as as different Skype windows and and messenger windows and so on come up and email messages. Doing something like that as a result of the Netwraith spell that would be cool. So effectively, you're saying it's a horror version of that episode of Modern Family that took place entirely on desktop. I've not seen that, but I'll really? take your word for it. Ah, uh, that's oh, had me in stitches just uh, <laughs> seeing the whole episode from the perspective of someone's desktop at work. There's a fun Spanish thriller that came out, I think, about a year or two as well, that does exactly the same thing, uh, called Open Windows, which I recommend. Mm-hmm. The trouble with mass media. Hand in hand with communications in the internet, we have mass media. The news is everywhere, and people are putting things on Twitter. The news are reporting it. It's a very quick feedback to the to the world now. So you know something happens somewhere. There's a shooting. Somebody's got it on their camera phone. 
Yeah, and it becomes a, a lot more difficult to keep large events secret, or at least off the radar. But at the same time, you know, going back to what we were talking about with disinformation and opposing points of view and so on, that just because something appears as a story on mass media and, and on the internet doesn't mean that someone just won't shoot it down and, and introduce a lot of distrust into it. And if it seems incredible, if it involves mythos entities, aliens, ghosts, and so on, then people are just going to say it's rubbish people are just going to debunk it well actually i mean that's a good point because with modern video editing techniques and special effects and so on we can actually trust a lot less of what we see on film than you know say in the 1920s if someone shot cine footage in the 1920s that looked very very realistic not like a stop motion animation of a dinosaur running around the belgian congo that would be a bit difficult to dismiss entirely. If we saw it today, we'd probably think that you know some teenager did it in 10 minutes uh, in their bedroom. Case in point with Fear the Walking Dead, where you have that Vavar video that goes round of, oh, the guy's got shot, but he gets back up again, huh? And that the whole debate between various groups of, oh, you seen that fake video that was put up last night? Yeah. Yeah, who would believe that? Yeah, it's, it, well, it's got to be a viral ad for some film that's coming out. Yeah. Yeah. I think people are a lot more cynical in the modern day as well, even just taking taking out the technology aspect or taking out social media. That definitely there seems to be a lot more distrust. I think people were a bit more open minded way back in the day. On the other hand, though, it does make it a bit easier, perhaps, for uh, a keeper to get information out to people. You've certainly got this in the nineteen twenties with uh, the radio, or you know, perhaps even newsreel footage, with televisions around all over the place. Say, if you're travelling from you know from point A to point B, and there's a screen showing CNN in the airport. If you see a a, you know, a familiar face flash up there, or you know, a ticker tape uh, display that's showing that, that is some name that you're looking for, then it's very easy just to throw that out to the players and suddenly give them a clue that they wouldn't have just seen otherwise. Mm. And of course, the other thing with mass media is it can actually be a source of horror in itself. I mean, I'm, I'm not just talking about Fox News. For example, there was a film that came out a few years ago called The Signal. There was another f- film that came out uh, last year called The Signal, uh, but this is the one from, I think, about 2010, maybe slightly earlier than that, which is made up of three short segments. And the basic premise of it is there is this, this uh, signal that goes out on the air and everyone who sees it just gets driven into a homicidal rage. They don't become mindless zombies. I mean, they still have their own personalities, but they they just become slightly unhinged. And it's a a really quite powerful and effective film. There's a similar thing with um, uh, Pontypool as well, uh, where you've got radio broadcasts, or not even radio broadcasts, but it's just the idea that language then becomes uh, a vehicle for driving people insane. And again, mass media becomes the transmission mechanism for it. The trouble with player knowledge. One thing that we all have in common is that we all live in the modern day. Paul doesn't. He lives in the 1970s. I try. That, that is the modern day. What, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, that we have a fundamental connection to the time because we're surrounded by everything every day. We have mobile phones. We have modern cars for the most part. <laughs> um, we have access to all the modern technology, or at least we know of it because it exists, we've seen it on TV, it's permeated in culture. We don't necessarily have the same degree of connection with like the 1920s because we haven't lived in it, we haven't experienced it. We couldn't go down and really dig down to the minutiae on, um, on details of daily life, such as uh, throwing it out there, paying with different cur- currency, such as going back to the old um, imperial system. Would there be a phone? Things like that, yeah. Yeah, thing, things basically, minutiae little details. I remember that I had one particular game where um, the players had a bit more access to say, right, what type of vehicle do you want to go down to this uh, this place in? And I gave it free reign rather than dictate what was on the sheets. So I just said, oh, you've got a load of resources, pick pick whatever car you want. And one pl- one player at the table came up with this really specific Land Rover he said he wanted and was like very much he got i got the impression that he really wanted this thing by the look in his uh, by the look on his face i said well, okay, it's a land rover i don't see it being a massive problem there uh, so he sat back rather smug and um, impressed with himself i think okay maybe that was a bad idea i don't know <laughs> <laughs> um, and then it came up about how he eventually used the car to uh, drive away from the rest of the group 
get somewhere over ridiculously uh, difficult terrain mm. and be able to do X, Y, and Z with this thing and think, hang on, can, can this car do that? Yes. And he started rattling off the specs of the car um, down to the fact it has so many horsepower, it can do zero to 60 in so many seconds, it can combat this uh, angle of slope, um, it has this in, um, interior locking system that you can control from these different sources. They go, oh, for fuck's sake! And, and this is why you'll never get in with Jeremy Clarkson again. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's never, ever... Oh, it's It does boil down to an argument, when you, especially when you've got a um, someone who is very tech-savvy at the table, or even things like using the oh well, the computer hasn't um, can't get access a website, or your internet connection's yeah. down, your phone doesn't work. Well, I do this, 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 and this, and this, and it's done. Yeah, I've certainly seen that come up with the use of computers um, in games. There are some people who will get far, far too into the details of that, and you know, start wanting to role play it to really quite tedious extent. Mm-hmm. That's not to say these kinds of things don't happen in historical games. I mean, they do. And you have pedants and, and you know, people who are obsessed with details in all sorts of areas. It's just, I think, in the modern day, it kind of broadens the scope of that. For me, it's, it's outweighed by the ease of playing in the modern day that most people know, as you said, what things are available in the modern day. Yeah, and it makes it much easier to sort of visualise and describe things. No one can necessarily picture what the 1920s looked like accurately, but yeah, everyone knows what their town or city in the modern day looks like. Other troublesome problems. We can see a lot of scenarios that have been published for what they call modern day, but they soon go out of date. When we look at Cthulhu now, that was written in the 90s, I think, so 20 years ago. And things very quickly change. Yeah, I mean, the Cthulhu Now books, I think we've said this on other podcasts, are now a period setting for the 1990s. You know, they weren't written as such, but if you go through the equipment lists and the technology there, then yes, of course they are. And it's not just that. I mean, it's the way politics change, it's the way travel changes, public attitudes change, pop culture changes. But aside from the references like those, it'd be interesting to look at those scenarios and see, are there problems with running them now? Or would you just take them and pretty much on the fly, just update them to modern terms and, and references? I think there's a classic example of a scenario that has dated in a very strange way. It's not a Call of Cthulhu one, it's uh, an Unknown Armies one. A scenario called Fly to Heaven. Oh God, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) No Uh, one ever runs that now, no, unsurprisingly. (laughs) Yeah, Fly to Heaven is all about airline hijacking, and I think it was published around 1999 or so. Yeah. And it depicts a very different, you know, set of security concerns and a very different public perception of what hijacking involves. Within a couple of years of that coming out, it just became unplayable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially considering it is pretty much a guy trying to fly a plane into a US city. Yeah. He's Mm. deliberately trying to crash the thing. Another miscellaneous thing that occurs to me, investigators tend to commit a lot of crimes. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, they, they, they kill people, they burn buildings down, uh, they do you know, commit acts of larceny. Are you saying they're the bad guys? <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm saying that most of them have convinced themselves they're the good guys. In the 1920s, forensic science maybe wasn't quite as advanced as it was now, and, and it perhaps was a bit easier for investigators to get away with doing stuff like that and not have to deal with the consequences. Now, you know, if you bump off a cultist or two, you might leave DNA evidence, fingerprint evidence. You may get caught on CCTV cameras. Um, uh, There could be all sorts of unforeseen complications that just wouldn't apply to a classic era Call of Cthulhu scenario. But it's not all doom and gloom. Here are some advantages. Well, the good thing about the modern world is how fragile it is. Oh, yes. In the UK here, about 10 years ago, we had fuel strikes where people protested the the price of fuel. And that was when it hit 80 pence a litre. And considering that it's now just gone under the pound again for the first time, it's, I think, the lowest price in the last 11 years, someone quoted online. Yeah, yeah. So there was mass protests against this hike in fuel prices mm. and people blockaded petrol stations and uh, uh, well um, distribution centres. And it was 
remarkable how quickly the world started to feel like Day of the Triffids. You know, supermarket shelves began to be emptied. Uh, there were queues at petrol stations. People were actively stockpiling fuel in their houses, leading to home fires. I think it lasted four or five days, maybe about, a week. I it was maybe a week or so. Yeah. Oh, yeah, but it certainly wasn't actually that long. I mean, so much so the government have now taken action to circumvent that, you know, with, with stockpiles of fuel and, and uh, you know, and changing laws against blockading distribution centres and so on. But, but the point being how quickly that infrastructure breaks down. But it only takes a small thing to cause people to panic. I mean, if they report that there's going to be heavy snowfall, then people are going to go out, depending where you live, but certainly in most places in England, it causes complete breakdown of the of the transport network. And people are immediately going out and stockpiling, you know, bread and, and milk and stuff and enough to last a month. Imagine if the internet went down, fuel stopped being delivered. There's that, that phrase about us only being three meals away from anarchy or three meals away from revolution. You know, people soon feel that. Yeah, and as far as communications networks going down, I mean, it does happen at, at certain times. If you want a, a very small example of this, just try using your mobile phone on New Year's Eve. In a lot of cases, the networks are congested just on the stroke of midnight, and if you try phoning up a loved one uh, to wish them Happy New Year, you may not get through. So it means that Anything that happens in your game that is not necessarily world-spanning, but is, is going to seriously impact a, a wide geographical area, you're suddenly into the Walking Dead-style breakdown of society as, mm. as, as the infrastructure is really just there for the next 12 to 24 hours. And as soon as you cut off the power, you cut off the fuel, things like that, it, it all suddenly just implodes on itself. Fantastic yeah. for gaming because <laughs> you're into some fantastic apocalyptic uh, changes and all these problems in the modern day we talked about have transformed into something quite new and exciting. Yeah, the authorities, for example, you can't guarantee are going to be on your side anymore. But yes, maybe they're going to help you or maybe they're going to see you as a problem to be contained or dealt with. Mm-hmm. Uh, or give you a merciful killing to spare you the pro- uh, to spare you the horror of turning into the zombie. Uh, yeah. Or just accidentally. I'm, I'm thinking of the end of Night of the Living Dead. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm. We've talked a lot about the problems. What are the advantages of playing in the modern day? Well, I mean, the big one, I suppose, is the fact that you know, if you're playing in a historical setting, you, know, you do need to know it, you need to research it. And if it's not something you already know, it, it's perhaps as a keeper or a GM or even a player, quite a lot of work to do so. If you're playing in the modern day, it may be in a different part of the world. Uh, you, know, you may have to research another culture or another place. But on the whole, there's going to be a much lower barrier to entry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as, as I mentioned previously, we all exist in it anyway. We all know the, we all know the time. And I know, you know one thing that a lot of Call of Cthulhu gamers seem to get hung up on, which is something I must admit I don't do an awful lot of in my game, is you know handling the purchase of equipment and price lists and so on. You know, a major part of you know any Call of Cthulhu supplement outlining a period or a place always seems to be equipment lists. If you're playing in the modern day, the internet is your equipment list. If you need to look at the price of something, check it on Amazon or eBay or your favourite shopping site. Well, you've probably got a pretty good idea idea anyway what things cost in the modern day there's the argos catalog there you go yeah (laughs) didn't you do that in one game scott just give them the argos catalog and let let them stock up from there somebody did it wasn't me but i I remember hearing about that yes When it comes to inspiration for scenarios, just look on the you know, on the news, browse through news websites, look at the different things going on in different corners of the world. The weirder and dodgier, the better, really. Oh God, yes. Yeah, maybe pick up a copy of fourteen fourteen times. Yeah, or just look at news stories and rumours on the internet and just think, what if they were all true, or just, you know, what if some of them were true? Yeah, and I. If I remember right, Scott wasn't particularly fond of it, but one uh, nice little modern horror film that I uh, that I found that I quite liked, The Objective, um, sending a team out into... Oh, yeah. You know, I like that. Sort of the war-torn Middle East. Um, to, or I think it's actually... Yeah, it is Afghanistan. It's Afghanistan. Yeah. 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 Um, kind of going to track down the uh, flying sh- uh, flaming shields. Yeah, I, I thought it was a great setup, and I thought it was very atmospherically done. It just didn't seem to go anywhere. Yeah, I think using very topical subjects for inspiration that that can work really well mm. i tend to dive into plenty of books about mythology folklore and ancient history for inspiration but the modern even the news services can do that just as well sometimes 
So there might not be 10, but let's have a top 10 countdown of the advantages of playing in the modern day. So we've got less research required. Basically, you know the world you live in. You don't need to go and research it. You've got the internet as your price list. Everything's there, and you probably know what prices of stuff are anyway. The news is inspiration. There's all the weird news, the conspiracy theories of the modern day, the odd things that happen. They could be real. Just go looking on the internet or on YouTube. A lower barrier to entry. So for the players, they don't need to verse themselves in what life was like in another period. Again, it's modern day. If you split the party, you've got mobile phones. They can stay in touch. You don't need to worry about splitting the party because they can all talk to each other. Modern technology, if you use it right, can be a vehicle for introducing horror, as we discussed earlier. And last off, the modern world with its communication is great for all those cults and nutters and weirdos who want to, you know, serve Yogg-Sothoth. <laughs> I mean, the real world is absolutely full of cults already, some of which are at least as scary as anything you can come up with in your Call of Cthulhu game. You are spoiled for choice and inspiration there. <laughs> we live in a world with Donald Trump. What more oh. do you need? That's horrific enough. <laughs> oh, God. You, you may have to cut that out so that in a couple of years, President Trump doesn't send his troops after us. <laughs> We have new Patreon backers again. This is becoming uh, a regular occurrence, you know. It is, I, and we are absolutely delighted and grateful to all of you. As we said at the top of the show, we're using our shiny new microphones uh, for this episode, and this is all thanks to the generosity of our Patreon backers. At the moment, we're something like six or seven dollars away from uh, our next Patreon milestone, which is where we're going to start releasing audio recordings of various public domain weird tales. So, <laughs> at the rate we're going, that may happen within a few weeks. So if you want to hear Scott reading A Colour Out of Space... Mm, that, that is next on the slate, assuming that we get the funding. But in the meantime, we have two new backers to thank. First of all, we have... A big thanks to Anders Granstrom. Thank you, Anders. Indeed, thank you very much, Anders. And thanks to our other new Patreon backer, Steve Weaver. Thank you very much, Steve. Yes, thank you, Steve. Thank you, Steve. And cheers to you. Hey. Well, we have one more bit of news. Jim Phillips from Skype of Cthulhu is going to be running Gatsby and the Great Race online. Yes, this is going to be quite the undertaking. Uh for those of you who aren't familiar with Gatsby and the Great Race, it involves a lot of players, a lot of keepers, and uh, it should be really quite the experience. That's taking place on Sunday the 21st of February at 3pm GMT. And you can find out more information on the Miskatonic University forums if you go to either our forum or the Skype Cthulhu forums or via Yogg-Sothoth forums. At least some of us should be involved with this in some capacity. We're not quite sure what yet. Uh, we're just finalising the details with Jim. But, uh, yeah, keep an eye out. And with any luck, we'll, we'll see or at least hear some of you there. And in conclusion, our final thoughts about the trouble with today. Well, in conclusion, what do we make of playing in the modern day? Would you rather play in modern day? Or would you rather have a period setting? I'd go period every time, mainly because I, th I live in the modern day. I want, to I want to escape from this shithole that is the modern world. I want to go into something that's a lot more romantic. Uh, maybe it's a romanticist view of the past, but I think the past is A, more interesting, more evocative, and I can do more with it as a setting rather than being constrained by the, kind of the shackles of modern society. Scott? I tend to prefer the modern day because I find the real world is horrifying and weird and full of all sorts of fucked up shit. And, yeah, it, it just speaks to me. Yeah, I, I would tend to go with the modern day as well. I think there's a reason why... I, well, I haven't verified this, but my guess is that most horror films are probably set in the modern day mm. for the same reason, because it's just easier and it's easier for the audience to buy into uh, and it's easier to film them that way. Whereas I would just cheap, uh, chime in and say that it's not lousy filmmaking, but definitely cheapskate because they're not investing in the props and the setting to make it look nicer. 
Well, we we talked about shaky fists at the start when, when you say newfangled, and I can see that me and Scott have maybe got one shaky fist up, but Matt is waving two shaky fists above his head and saying, damn this newfangled world. <laughs> Bring back the 70s. <laughs> well, I think our job here is done. Well, I just want to leave you with the thought, Matt, that Lovecraft... The man who despised the modern day, the, the man who romanticised the past and even wrote in an archaic style, set all his stories, or almost all his stories, in what was the modern day for him. Kind of ironic, really, isn't it? <laughs> and often using what was relatively cutting-edge science and exploration mm. and so on. Yeah. So you're calling Lovecraft a lazy hack, Matt. Well, given my opinion on some of his stories, as we described. <laughs> <laughs> and on that bombshell. <laughs> well, that's it for this week. It's a newfangled goodbye from me. A thoroughly contemporary cheerio from me. And a good old old-fashioned farewell from me. Hello. Blasphemous Tomes.com. Mm-hmm.